Well, good morning. So happy to be with you guys on this Sunday morning. When I was a kid, um, I remember that my grandparents spoiled me and my brothers a lot. And one of the things my dad would often say to my grandparents is, that isn't necessary. So whether it's toys or my grandmother's a great cook, so the three course meals that she would make us for breakfast, lunch, and dinner all the time. And then when I became a parent, and then I soon realized that my dad was absolutely right. I think in my kids' short existence, both of them have received more toys from their grandparents than I have received my entire life from my own parents. And so all the time, I'm just like, why? This is, they don't need this. They don't need to eat this. They don't need to have this toy. They don't need to have this thing. There does not need to be more, there does not need to be more toys at the grandparents' house than our own house. It's just a lot of unnecessariness, right? And so I was born in Charlotte. My grandparents lived in Statesville. It was about an hour away. And so the first five years, we were pretty close. We moved to Cary when I was around five, and so then it became a two-hour drive. And so what would often happen is my mom or my dad would drive halfway, would meet my grandmother and kind of pass us off, and we would go spend some time with them, and then they would meet again. And so when I was a kid, one, one time, uh, my grandmother was dropping us back off. My dad was meeting her at Crackle Barrel, so that was the exchange location. And uh, she, she told him that she was going to make him one of his favorite pies, when she dropped us off. And so he's obviously really excited about this. And so we get out of the car, we unpack all of our stuff, we get ready to go. And then my grandmother goes back to her vehicle, takes out a uh, container, hands it to my dad and says to him, I was going to put a pie in this, but I didn't think it was necessary. And gave him an empty container and it was awesome, right? It was awesome. Not at all. Not at all what he thought was going to happen. And today, as we continue our time through the book of Nahum, we're seeing God doing something to Syria, to Nahum, the most powerful nation on earth, that they did not think was possible, that they did not think was going to happen. And we're going to see how God accomplishes his purposes. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Nahum chapter 2 this morning, Nahum chapter 2. Uh, if you have your own Bible, do not fret about uh, turning the Bible open opening the Bible, rather, and going to page one and trying to find out where Nahum actually is. It's a really small book somewhere in the New Testament. Of course, if you have one of the black ones, it tells you the page number right there. Uh, now, I'm not going to do a whole recap of last week. Nahum is three chapters in the book uh, in the Old Testament. It's a three-chapter book. He is a prophet who lived in the 600s BC. Um, at the time when Nahum comes onto the scene, uh, Israel has been split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is under rule and reign from Assyria. The southern kingdom, called Judah, also where Jerusalem was located, was a vassal state, so they pay, paid heavy taxes and fees and fines. And while they weren't ruled by Assyria, they essentially were. And so it's been over 100 years of oppression. And so Nahum is essentially Jonah part two. This is about 150 years after Jonah comes on the scene, tells Nineveh to repent. Nineveh does repent, but then we know historically they didn't last very long because at this point in time, they're the most powerful nation on earth, and they have done some horrific and atrocious things to the nations that they have taken over. And so Nahum is the prophecy that God is going to destroy and to judge Nineveh and to let Israel go free. And in chapter 2, Nahum is going to prophesy some of the details of what it's going to look like when Nineveh is captured. And one of the things that we're reminded of as we read the book of Nahum is that sometimes reading the scripture can be confusing. Uh, sometimes you are not sure what to do with it. It is an ancient text. So that is totally okay. And sometimes we read scripture just to learn about the character of God and who he is. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 2. And so here's what it says, Nahum chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, Nahum the prophet prophesies this. One who scatters is coming up against you. 
Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength. So again, the you here is Nineveh. And Nineveh, to, to, just a reminder here, um, the prophet is telling this to Israel. So he's not telling this to Nineveh, but he's telling this to Israel, letting them know what God was going to do, that he is the one that's going to scatter them. Now we know historically what actually this looked like was in 612 BC, the Medes and the Babylonians kind of formed a coalition, uh, the, these nations were rising to defeat the uh, Assyrians. And so God can use whatever means he wants to do it. And so Nahum says, prepare yourselves, even though it is going to be worthless. Verse two, it says, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. And so here again, Nahum is speaking to Israel that because God is going to restore Israel's majesty, Israel's glory, that this battle must happen. That the, that the splendor of the Ninevites will go from the earth, which would have been a comfort to Israel. Again, they have been impressed. There is not a single person alive in Israel or in the world that has not experienced the Assyrian rule. And so this would have come as good news to them. And then he gives some detail of what this will look like. He says this in verse three, the shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flashed like fire on the day of its battle preparations. And the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. What Nahum is doing here is he is giving kind of really specific details about what this attack is going to look like and the swiftness of it and the defeat of the Ninevites. And so he, God decrees the destruction of Nineveh. He says it's going to happen. And then uh, it, God wants Israel to know it's what it's going to look like. And so what Nahum does is he, in some, some ways, vividly describes what's going to happen and how it's going to take place. Right? The prophet is assuring them that this is what's going to happen, and here is how God is going to do it. And so he's giving them details. Now, I don't know this to be true, but I, I do know this personally, that sometimes when people tell you something that's hard to believe, unless they go into detail about how they're going to do it, you just don't believe them. And again, if you're the Israelites in this case, the most powerful nation on earth who's ruled and oppressed you, it is really hard for you to believe that this is actually going to end. And so again, for example, when people tell me things, my default is not to believe them. It's great. It's a great, great trait I have. But like, for example, if someone tells me they're going to do something like really significant or really cool, I just don't believe them. So like anytime, for example, someone tells me they're going to learn a new language, I don't believe them. Like, you just want me to say, oh, good job, I'm impressed, but you're not going to do it, right? Because everybody says, like, they go on some mission trip or they go on vacation and they come back. And like, oh, it's such a beautiful language. I'm going to learn it. Like, no, you're not. You're not. And I'm not going to give you the credit. Like, you're not going to do it, right? Uh, or, or put another way, or another way this happened to me a couple years ago. I had a friend who was about 22 at the time, and he said he was going to retire early. He was going to retire by the time he was 30 so that he could focus his life on doing some things that were kind of more near and dear to his heart. And so, you know, there's a whole movement of saving and investing and retiring early. And so that was his plan. Now, of course, I didn't believe him because everybody says that. But then as we're meeting, he starts to explain to me how he's going to do it. And he starts to show me these Google sheets of how much he needs to make, what are, where his investments need to go, what the increase needs to look like every year. And then he begins to show me these 3D graphs that he has made of the stock market 
of what, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even explain how it is, but like this happens, this happens, this happens. He's like, you can't even get this stuff anywhere. Like this is proprietary. I've made it myself. He's like doing all these investments. He like does day trading before he goes to work. So he's going in all this detail. And I'm like, okay, like I'm starting to believe you. And then I say, okay, but uh, are you planning to get married at any point? Because this will change your plans. And he says, no, it's not. And then he begins to explain to me <laughs> that his wife, regardless of how much she makes, this percentage of her income has to be, is going to be set aside for this, and this is the money that they're going to live on, and it's not going to make a difference. Again, she can make whatever she wants, but she's got to stay within these parameters and do these things with her income. To which I responded to him by saying, this is great detail, but I don't think that conversation with her is going to go the way you think it's going to go. I'm just... <laughs> I could be wrong, but I don't think, right? Now that I say, as he's explaining all this detail to me, I actually believe him, right? He's like 25 now. He's like three to four years into this journey, and he's still on the path. And it's like all of this detail, I'm like, this isn't just uh, feel-good philosophy. This isn't just aspirational dreaming. I hope this is going to happen. The detail by which he's explaining what's going to happen is making me believe that he's actually going to do it. And I think that's a little bit of what Nahum is doing here to Israel. It's like, this is not just, oh, I hope it's going to work out. Or it's not just God is going to redeem you. It's he's going to redeem you. And this is what it's going to look like. And then he says this in verse 5, talking about the, uh, the people coming to uh, take over Nineveh. He says, he gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. So now the attackers are at the city gates. Uh, the stumbling here could refer to the pace in which they're coming to attack. It's going so quickly that they're essentially stumbling over themselves, or maybe they're stumbling over the wreckage of the outer villages as they race to the city gates that is protecting Nineveh as they come and approach. And then it says this in verse 6, it says, the river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Now, for us that don't really know the geography of Nineveh in the ancient Near East, uh, Nineveh was on the bank of the Tigris River on the east side, which is a very a big river. And then it also had a smaller river that was it, flowing right through the capital of the city. And so it provided natural protection, and it was a part of you know, what bring them, brought, brought them life and flourishment and nourishment and all these things to have two massive water supplies protecting the city. But now the water that protected them is actually going to turn into, be part of their downfall. Right? As the attackers banished the rivers uh, against the city, um, how, how they kind of dammed up the waters and how they kind of used the water against the city, we're not sure, but Nahum is saying it is going to happen. And it's going to, they're going to cut off the water supply and they're going to use their natural protection against them. And then it says this in verse 7. It says, beauty is stripped. She is carried away, talking about Nineveh here. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. In other words, after the main palace is overtaken, after it erodes, it goes away. Nineveh is going to be conquered. Uh, Nineveh is going to be humiliated. And for over a century, Israel and many of these nations have suffered horrific things at the hands of the Ninevites. We're going to talk about some of those things next week on Mother's Day. It's great timing. Uh, so that'll be fun. Um, but all these things that are happening that, that Assyria has done to other people, now they will have it happen to themselves. And then in verse 8, it says this. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one 
turns back. And so what's happening here is that finally in verse 8 in chapter 2, this is the first time that Nineveh is actually explicitly mentioned. Now, we know it's about Nineveh. Uh, The authors of the uh, English translations have put Nineveh in chapter 1, for example, when it wasn't there to kind of tell us what he's talking about. But for the first time, Nineveh is actually mentioned, that God has and that God will deliver his people. Again, the major resource of water is now leaking away, and it's leaving the pool and its powers empty. That hearing, again, of Nineveh's demise would bring joy to the people because redemption is coming. Redemption is coming. Now, now, like I said earlier, and we talked about this last week, if you were here, that Nahum is really Jonah part two, that over 150 years ago, Jonah came and preached repentance. Nineveh actually repented for, for at least a short time before they kind of went on their killing spree and their wealth accumulation spree and began to take over the known world. And so what you, as you read this, this might seem kind of like interesting here, or maybe a powerful language, that why is all of a sudden God starting to do this? And one of the things that we see that Nahum is trying to show us, again, as we learn about the character of God, as we read maybe Old Testament books that might not like make a lot of sense in our day and age, one of the things that we see is this, that God's mercy doesn't diminish God's judgment. His mercy, his patience, his forbearance, None of these things diminish the judgment of God, right? It is striking and forceful judgment that is coming to Nineveh, even though God has been patient and so long and restraining himself from making it happen. And what can happen too, if you think about your life or my own life, what we can begin to believe and behave and how we operate our own lives, it can be often similar to Nineveh. That we can be think that, well, because maybe I've made some poor decisions or I'm doing some things I shouldn't be doing, but I haven't really maybe the consequences haven't caught up to me, that God doesn't really care. That he maybe doesn't really think it's that big of a deal because he hasn't like struck me down like I thought he might want to do, right? But what Nahum is showing us is the rightful judgment of God against evil. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and I'm not going to pretend to know all of them, but it, it somewhat makes me think of maybe maybe deconstruction or deconversion, people walk away from their faith. I think what people begin to experience is they begin to kind of reject maybe the faith they grew up in or the beliefs they start to have. And maybe when they had those beliefs, they thought that if they did something different, God would be really angry with them and like strike them down or judge them in some way. And then they begin to have questions and doubts, which is nothing wrong with that at all. Maybe they begin to change their beliefs and their practices and their preferences. And then they realize, oh, nothing's happened to me. So I guess all this stuff isn't true. I guess all this stuff is wrong. And maybe it can give some maybe false confidence to walk away from the Lord. And I think Nineveh, again, it's not the same scenario, but Nineveh could be the same way. There's nothing going to happen to us because if we were really going to be judged, it would have happened by now, but it hasn't. So we must be okay. It reminds me of a funny story of a pastor, an Irish pastor, who uh, was a very successful boxer, but he was also a devout Christian. And so as he began to get a little bit older, and as his skills and his natural talents began to deteriorate a little bit with his age, he gave up boxing, gave up fighting, and became a traveling evangelist. And so he'd go all over his country of Ireland, he would set up tents, and he would do these revivals, and so he gets to this one new town, and as he's setting up his tent for the revival, and he has these people working with him, these two kind of thugs see what's going on, and they start to make fun of him. They start to throw insults at him. Uh, they start to laugh that he's doing this thing, that he believes in God and all these things. Now, they don't know who this boxer, who he was, of course, but they just see that this evangelist is in town. And so they think it's kind of funny. 
And so they're insulting him, but he does nothing in retaliation. He says nothing. He doesn't respond. And so they start to feel a little bit more confident. They start to egg him on a little bit more. They say, aren't you going to do anything about it? He still does nothing. And so finally, one of the guys decides to strike him in the face. They think he can get away with it. He punches him right in the face. Now, the, bo- the pastor says nothing. He kind of looks at him a little bit. And instead of responding, instead of fighting back, he simply turns the other cheek. Now, the guy who punched him was like, really? Like, this is how it's going to go? I'm going to punch him again. So he winds up and he punches his other cheek. He knocks him out a second time. At which point, the pastor responds by taking off his jacket, rolling up his sleeves, and saying, the Lord has given me no other commands. (laughs) Now, I don't know that that's the perfect analogy here, but those guys thought that they could get away with it because nothing was happening to them. Now, I'm not saying that's the proper interpretation of turn the other cheek, but I am saying it's easy for us to do those same things in our lives, to think it's fine, to think it doesn't matter, to think because God has been merciful, because God has forgiven, that he actually doesn't care that I am doing these things, that I'm hurting these people, or that I'm going my own way. And what Nahum is saying is that that is not true. He may be patient. He may be merciful. He may be forgiving, but he will one day write and address every evil that is ever happened. And so he continues by saying this in verse 9 of chapter 2. He then says this, plunder, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, an abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn. Every face grows pale. So again, Assyria had been around for about 200 years total at this point, and it acquired a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of military strength, and now the oppressors are the ones who are trembling. Now the oppressors are ones who face turn pale with fear with what is happening to them. Now, one of the things that's really cool when you begin to see how the Bible connects, you might not find this really interesting. What I'm going to ask for the next two minutes is you put your Bible nerd hat on for me, okay? And you be just as excited about what I'm going to tell you as I am, okay? Here's one of the things that think that's really cool when you read throughout the New Testament. Now, the book of Nahum doesn't tell us this, but we know when you read the book of 2 Kings and how things line up, that Nahum was the prophet uh, for Israel when King Josiah was the king of Judah. Now, King Josiah was the king of Judah from 640 to 609 BC. Now, here's why this matters. Many of the kings of Israel were not faithful. Uh, Many of them did their own things, became like the other nations, which is why they also experienced God's judgment. But Josiah was one of the few godly kings. And you can read about Josiah in in the book of 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings, when Josiah is on the throne, he begins to take away all the Assyrian idols from the temple. He begins to clean up the temple. He begins to remove some of the pagan poles that were all around Judah and Israel. And he begins to teach people the law. He pretty much discovers the Old Testament again. And he has the the priests go out throughout the kingdom and start to tell people who God is and how to obey him. He does all, he brings a lot of reform in Israel. Now, again, we don't know this for sure, but it's pretty undoubtedly true that Nahum's prophecy certainly would have given him the confidence to do so. We're never told about how they interacted, but certainly when you would read stuff like this and you want to honor God, it would give you the confidence to say, you know what? We're no longer going to bow to the Assyrian gods. We're no no longer going to make sacrifices to them. We are not going to be afraid of following and trusting the Lord. 
And what can happen when we read the scripture, because we know what happens, is we can forget how significant this would have been. That even if you have a prophet who is telling you this is going to happen, that God will redeem you, it takes a lot of trust and faith to actually believe that's going to be true. Because what Josiah was doing, if Assyria is not going to be destroyed, could essentially be a death sentence to him. To say, we are rejecting your gods, and we are going to follow the Lord. That his trust in Nahum's prophecy certainly encouraged him to begin to reform Israel to be faithful again. And I wonder for us, if you would say you're a follower of Jesus this morning, and you consider what God has done, what he's asked you to do. And as we read Nahum, a question that might come up for us and for you is this, do you trust in the Lord, or sorry, does your trust in the Lord impact how you live? And by trust in the Lord here, I don't just mean like I believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he died for me, that he uh, forgave me, that he's redeemed my soul. I'm not just talking about that trust, but I'm talking about the practical everyday, uh, everydayness of life, that your trust in who he is and what he's asked you to do, does that actually impact your day-to-day, your seasons, your life behavior in what you say and what you do? Because again, Nehemiah is a, it's a specific situation about a specific time, but it is still showing us God and who he is, right? And if you follow Jesus this morning, do you trust that he genuinely cares for you? And will you follow him? And I mean, practically, like, like are, is there anything in your life that you are currently doing or currently pursuing because you're trusting that is he is who he says he is? And that's, the, that's really the driving, motiva- uh, the motivating factor in how you do it. Maybe it's being kind and forgiving and merciful to someone or a friend or a colleague who doesn't deserve it, but because you trust the Lord is good and this is what he's asked you to do because this is what he's done for you, it impacts how you live. Maybe how you structure your budget and your finances and your generosity and how you maybe can't do some of the things that you would otherwise want to do because you're trusting that what the Lord has asked you to do is worth it and is good. Does your trust in him, like Josiah, cause you to live differently? I think of Brian and Brittany. They're on staff here at New City Church. Many of you know them and love them. They have adopted a child. They are in the foster care system. They fostered many kids before, and now they're waiting for the next placement. And as I talk to Brian and I hear him talk about how hard it is for him to walk past the room in their house where they have an empty crib, and knowing that they want to do good, and so they're, they're waiting, but their whole life has been changed. They've got a room in their house. They've got their finances. They've gone through all this training and all this stuff that you have to do to keep your licenses up trusting that God is going to bring them a child that they can love the way that God has asked them to do, right? Their trust in the Lord has impacted that. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go and foster. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I'm not saying that God is saying that you need to go do that. But I just think that's a great tangible example of somebody who is trusting the Lord, hasn't seen what all that God wants them to do, but is taking steps of faithfulness. Does your trust in the Lord, if you would say I'm a follower of Jesus this morning, impact how you live, because that's what Josiah is doing. And then it says this in verse 11, as he continues to talk about the prophecy against Nineveh. He says, where is the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions? The lion here is Nineveh, where the lion and the lioness prowled and the lion's club with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mold whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its den with the kill and its layers with mold prey. 
right? Now, to, to be clear here, these verses sound like Assyria no longer existed, like it's already happened. But again, Nahum's point here is to prophesy against the most powerful nation on earth. And he's kind of using sarcasm to display the certainty of it all, that this is what's going to happen, that after their destruction and after their judgment, this evil lion that went around prowling and killing and hurting other people and other nations and other things will no longer have the ability to do so. And it will no longer be feared. And then he says this, verse 13. He says, beware, I am against you, you being Nineveh. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Again, what's happening here is that ultimately Nineveh, or sorry, rather God, it is God who is against Nineveh. It is God who is against evil and pain and suffering and wickedness, and that he will cause Nineveh's destruction, and that the Lord will end their terror, never to be dealt with and never to be experienced again. And his prophecy or his promise to the, the Israelites is that if God says he's going to do something, he will do it. That he will do it, but you have to trust him. You have to trust him. Now, again, I just want to be, you know, sensitive for us. Reading stuff like this is hard, right? I think it's hard for us to fully appreciate what, what is all going on here and maybe the, the judgmental terms that Nahum is using. Because for us, for Americans, again, I said this last week, particularly the younger you are, but even if you're a little bit older and you, you've, you've been around and you've seen war, in America, like, the war doesn't happen to us. It happens to other places around the world. And so it can be hard for us to fully understand what it's like to be oppressed and what it's like to have other countries and other people do to you whatever they might want to do to you. It's not maybe the same thing, but again, in the age of social media, you can see things happening in Ukraine, for example, and you can be devastated and you can be wanting God to move and imagine that this happened all the time. Right? In these ancient kingdoms, unless you were a citizen of one of those ancient kingdoms, and if you were one of the uh, nations that, were, you were, that was captured, you weren't. You had no legal standing. They could take whatever they wanted. They could treat you however they wanted. They could do to you and your property whatever they wanted. Imagine what we're seeing happening in Ukraine, happening all the time, and no one to stop it. Right? You and I would also say, please, Lord, do something. And Nahum is saying, the Lord is going to do it. Now, that being said, again, if you were to wake up one morning and make yourself some coffee and say, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord today, and you opened up to Nahum chapter 2, you might be thinking, what in the world am I supposed to do with this, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, uh, if I had not, like, studied and prepared a sermon and I happened to open up to Nahum chapter 2, I would think the same thing. Like, what do I do with this? Like, what am I supposed to do? Right? This is not the, uh, maybe the sermon series you would go through if you're trying to do something like a church growth strategy. Let me read something that nobody has any idea what's going on. But again, part of us wanting to do this is to remind ourselves, uh, what does it look like to read Scripture and to understand Scripture? And I want to encourage you, right? What does this mean for me is not always the best thing to do when coming to, extend, uh, to study the Scripture. Uh, instead, what I want to do is remind you of two things to remember when reading the Bible. Because listen, Jesus and who he is is very clear. What to do with an ancient text written thousands of years ago? There's a lot of confusion. So I just want to say two things real quick uh, to remember when reading the Bible. Number one is this, that scripture is not about you. It is not about you. It's about God, his character, and who he is. 
And if every time you read scripture, you read it through the lens of what does this mean for me, you're missing it. Now, of course, there's a lot of application and things you can take away, but it is not about you. It's about God, his character, his love for you, and who he is. You read scripture to learn about God, which also means this, number two, that every passage doesn't have a practical or personal meaning or next step for you. Every passage does not have a practical or a personal meaning or next step for you. And I want to encourage you, right? Sometimes you read scripture and you're like, I'm not sure what to do with that. That is okay. Because it's about God and who he is. It's his redemption, right? And so uh, what I want to do, that being said, is I want to give you two applications. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> what I do instead is I want to leave with you with two things that we learn about God from this text. Because sometimes you read scripture and that's what you get. Who is God? Here's two things that we learn about God. Here's the first one. That God is patient with his enemies. What we see happening here is that God is extremely patient with his enemies, right? First with Jonah over 150 years ago, before this happened, if you're familiar with that story, he waited that long before he did anything, right? Again, we mentioned this a little bit last week, but it's interesting, you know, how we have this false dichotomy of God of the Old Testament who is angry, angry and wrathful and judgmental until you actually read it and you think he's actually too patient and kind, right? Why? The question though is why? Why is God patient? Why does that God not fix things right away? Doesn't he, has anyone ever asked that question, God, why don't you stop it right now? God, why do you allow this to happen? Why is he patient? Well, in 2 Peter 3, it'll be on the screen, uh, Peter was talking specifically about the day of the Lord when Jesus will return a second time to judge the living and the dead and to invite us into his kingdom. And people are like, why, what has taken so long? And here's what he says. Here, here, here's why God is patient. It says this in verse 9. It says, dear friends, that's verse 8. Verse 9. Uh, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Why? Because he wants, what does it say? But, oh, now let's say it like all actually includes us. But, all oh, to come to repentance. Why is God patient? Because he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy. And he will wait an uncomfortable amount of time in order for that to happen. And what this means in this text is that God is just not patient generally, although he is, but it also means that God is patient specifically, that God is patient with you. And if you're here this morning and you think I've blown it and I've done all these terrible things and God's angry with me and I don't deserve it, you need to know that he loves you and that he cares and he is patient because he wants you to know who he is. Again, I think all of us have asked the question, God, why don't you stop evil? Like, why does God allow evil and wickedness and sin? Like, why does he put up with it? Right? We've all asked that question. How many of us have asked that question, God, why don't you start by eliminating evil with me? Like, why don't you eliminate me first? Like, all of a sudden, we're like, eh, other people's evil needs to stop. But maybe mine deserves a little bit more patience. What's happening here is that he, God, Peter is saying that God is patient with you. Nahum is showing us that God is a patient God. And he loves you. And he cares. And he puts up with our fallenness and our fallen short and our going our own way because he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy. If he's patient with his enemies, it means that he is patient with you. And the second thing we see from Nahum chapter 2 is this, is that how God views us determines life or death. In other words, it is God's view of us, not our view of us, not our kids' view of us, 
not our family's view of us, not our friend's view of us, not society's view of us, and yes, not even your dog's view of us, your dog's view of you, it doesn't matter. What determines your life, your death, your goodness, or your experiencing God's judgment is God and who he is. This is why maybe one of the popular phrases that people say from time to time that only God can judge me, typically in this sense of like, I'm doing some things that maybe I know I shouldn't be doing, but who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. The reality is that's a very heavy and scary thing, that the righteous and holy God of the universe will judge us. He will judge you. He will judge me for the things that we did, didn't do, even our motivations that no one else sees. In fact, in Hebrew, or sorry, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21, this is the last verse we'll read. It says this, it says, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. So the question is, how do we become, go from the wicked camp, the punished camp, to the righteous and to the free camp? How do we go free? How do we not experience Nineveh? How do we not experience the destruction that you and I might deserve? The answer, of course, is not trying harder. It's not doing better things. It's not doing less bad things and doing more good things. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel, that at just the right time, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That at just the right time, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, he took that which was dead and gave it life. And that by simply being honest, repenting, and trusting in the Lord, you can experience his goodness. You can experience his life, not his death. That is what the gospel does. And so here's what this means. This idea that how God views us determines our life or death. Here's how we can be viewed as children of God, by accepting and following Jesus. And if you do that, here's what this means. This means that you can be divorced and still be righteous. It means that you can be addicted to pornography and still be accepted by God. It means that you could have abused people in the past and still be forgiven. It means that you can be a liar. It means that you could have cheated people. It means that you could have stolen from people. It means that you, have got, you could gossip from people and you can still go free, right? This is the good news of the gospel, that he desires to give us life. And the way that we experience it is through him. It's through following Jesus. As we celebrated Easter a couple of weeks ago, through his death and burial and resurrection, though life feels like death, though we have, though we have made decisions that, that means that we deserve death, God in his grace gives us life. And he wants to view us as children of God. And all we have to do instead of clean ourselves up is trust and follow him and through the power of the spirit, allow him to direct our path. So listen, if you're here this morning and you feel dirty, and you feel broken, and life is really, really hard, and you feel condemned, God is offering you grace. He is patient with you for a reason, because he loves you, because he doesn't want any to perish, but all, which means you, to come to experience 